Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading I Needed a Neighbor by Patricia Sanjin with permission of Scripture Union Publications, and we are on Chapter 7. Hundreds of miles south, Tisva and Muna lay side by side in the frail shelter they had built from brushwood and reed matting, and which they now called home. It was still dark, and through the cracks in the roof they could see the blazing starlight. But the air was blessedly cool, and there was still another hour before the sun would leap over the plantations like some fierce, consuming animal, to sap their strength and parch their lips. Coming as they did from the highlands, the lowland heat was one of the worst things they had endured. They liked to wake early, for this was their own hour. At daybreak, Tisva would be hounded out to the coffee plantations, and Muna would follow shortly after. They would probably not meet again until sunset when they would bake their meager rations of injera, swallow some water, and lie down, exhausted in their shelter to sleep, with barely a word passing between them. But in the cool of the very early morning, some measure of daily strength returned to them, and they would lie quietly talking, thankful for each other because so many had died, and their talk would be of their children and the possibility of escape. Everybody talked about escape, and a few had disappeared. They had gone to the latrines outside the camp and had never been seen again. The guards, however, had made sure that this would not happen anymore, and now no one was allowed to leave the camp outside work hours, so the enclosure stank and festered. No one could do much about it. The ground was too hard to dig, nor they had any tools. The flies grew enormous, and sickness was rife. Even dead bodies lay unburied, wrapped in plastic sheets, shriveling in the burning heat while their relative summons the strength to scoop out a shallow grave. Some whispered that very soon the cholera sickness would break out, and then there would be many more dead bodies, many, many, many more dead bodies. But the dark early morning hour was their own, and Luna lay in the shelter of her husband's arm, and knew that while he lived she could go on, and that one day the God in whom she had almost ceased to believe she had never really known much about him, would help them get back to their children. It was a kind of obsession with her, and she never ceased thinking about it. Day by day, she would wake with some new plan of escape, only to find that it had been tried and proved impossible. But some have disappeared, she whispered, and remember, we're not far from the border. The bus driver told us that. We know where the sun rises and sets, and we only have to follow. And when they follow and shoot us down, what then? replied Tisfer patiently. His hope had almost died, but he recognized and admired that fierce maternal instinct in his wife that would never give up the struggle to return to her children. We might try in the dark, she whispered. Just before the new moon rises, it's very dark indeed. Or just after the new moon sets, they sleep. If we crawl out near to where the dead lie, there would be a chance. They will not sit near the dead. Tisva drew her closer. We'll talk about it with others, he said. They might make a disturbance down on the other end of the camp so that the guards would move down and leave the upper end unwatched for a few minutes. Or perhaps, after a time, they would relax their watch. As you say, the border can't be far. We could follow the path of the sun through the bush. But it's a long journey home, Muna, and we are weak. He was talking more to comfort her then, because he had... No real hope, and she knew it, but she was grateful to him. A small wind stirred the rush matting over their head, fetid with the stench of the camp, and the darkness was paling. 
They lay silent, savoring the last minutes of the rest and togetherness. And then Muna rose stiffly, scooped the ashes from the hole in front of the hut. She mixed the meal and the water into a thick paste and lit the brushwood under the metal. They crouched in the red dawn and drank the rest of the water. Then Tisfo went to the report for work and Muna sent off with her plastic container to the pipeline. They were still hungry. They would eat again at night, but their supply of grain and oil had to last till the end of the month. Muna walked slowly, partly because she was weak and the ground was rough, and partly because she was unconscious of everything except her own thoughts. Other women were converging on the water supply, but Muna's feet carried her automatically, and she barely noticed them. From far away, over the northern mountains, her children cried out to her, drawing her with a strength that was almost physical. Merit, her dark eyes, drowned in distress, not knowing where to go or what to do. Tigla, sick and weak, needing her. She filled her container and walked back, her determination growing with every step. She realized the wisdom of her husband, but she wished that she could make him see that whatever the odds, they must go. He was a loving husband, a good father, but he could not hear the voices of the children as she could. She reached the shelter they had built on arrival and sat for a few moments remembering. They had heard all the stories about the land of plenty to which they had been taken. There would be fruit and meat and plenty of water. But when those those filthy buses had drawn to a halt and disgorged their hungry, thirsty, soiled occupants, the newcomers were faced with a small deserted settlement where dwellers had been forced out to make room for others. There were small areas of land which had once been cultivated, but which now were dried up. There was not enough room for all, so the men were given access and told to build their own shelters. They were given a ration of oil and grain and told to fashion their cooking pots from what they could find. The militia with their guns patrolled the whole area, escorting them in herds to the coffee plantations at dawn and bringing them back at gunpoint at the evening through, through the bushes, watching them gather handfuls of firewood as they passed. It was a land of thorny bushes and low scrub, but away to the west the flatness rose to the low hills with the forest on their slopes. Muna had gazed at them over and over again. The scrub and the thorn provided little shelter, but in the clefts of the hill, hills in the forest they could hide. Evening after evening she had watched the flaming colors as the sun set behind that undulating horizon, and in her imagination they were fleeing through it on their way back to their children. It was getting very hot, and soon they would come and round her up with the other women to go to the plantation. She laid down her water container and crossed over to the small crumbling hut, where, amazingly, the baby still lived with its foster mother. But the girl had grown thin, and her milk was beginning to dry up. She looked down hopelessly at the tiny creature at her breast, and then up at Muna. I have come to say goodbye, said Muna. The girl began to cry, small, jerky sobs, for she had loved Muna like her own mother. And then she dried her tears, and her face became resolute. Many have gone, she said quietly. Some have been shot, but some have escaped into the bush. My husband has talked with many. This baby's father, he wants to go. He has left children at home, and he wants to try. You should talk to him. Tell him to come, whispered Muna. Tonight we will talk. Tomorrow is the turn of the new moon. So that night they came and sat around the tent door where the dusk was falling and the small fires glowed and the baby's father, two angry young men and a young couple, the woman half-crazed to get back to her family. They talked quietly, wasting no words. One was a mechanic and had fashioned a pair of wire cutters from scrap metal. 
for there was barbed wire around the northern end where the dead lay. As Moon had said, tomorrow was a new moon. Just before its rising, some people would start a, a commotion down at the southern end of the camp, and by that time the wire would be cut, and the escapees laying rigid by the side of the dead. When the noise started, they would crawl through on their stomachs and run into the darkness in different directions, splay out north, east, and west. The guards would, no doubt, hear the crackling of the dry brush and shoot. Some would die, and some would escape. Of those who might be wounded and dragged back, they refused to think. They crept away, each to their own shelter. Muna and Tifa lay side by side, unable to sleep but drawing courage from each other. Tomorrow, Muna would rise early, use up the rest of her grain ration, and make a store of injera. Tomorrow, they must drink well and carry only a little water. But tonight, they must love and talk a little, for it might be the last night they will ever spend together. Tonight, they must pray to God and Mary and all the saints to preserve them, but Muna did not did so half-heartedly, for where had God and Mary and all the saints been when they dragged her away from her children, when the girl who had given birth to that baby in the plain, when the dead lay unburied? There was no answer to that one, and she turned back to the thought of her gentle husband and leaned against him in the dark. Strange how when all the other lights on the earth burned dim and went out, the light of love seemed to burn brighter and brighter. She lay there thinking about it. Where did love come from? Was there a source? And why could either neither hunger nor thirst nor misery ever quench it? Love seemed so near that night, not only in her but all around her, wooing her, covering her. She found herself smiling and at peace, and she went to sleep. The next day was blazing hot. The workers came home in the evening and ate and drank as usual, then laid down exhausted. There were very few preparations to make. They put on their dark cloaks, tied a water bottle and a roll of injera around their waist, and Muna also tied a flat metal pan on which to bake. Then at the dark hour before the moon rose, they crawled on their stomachs across the earth and lay behind the pile of dead. One by one they arrived, and no one who survived ever forgot the nausea and fear of those waiting hours, nor the grinding of the metal on wire. It was after midnight, and the grinding had ceased, and the young mechanic lay quietly his work done and the way open. Suddenly there was a noise of fighting and confusing and piercing shrieks from the southern end of the camp. Guards leaped from the bush, rifles cocked, and they ran towards the direction of the noise, raising their lanterns, firing their guns in the air. The little waiting group wormed their way swiftly through the gap, rose to their feet, and ran north, east, west into the bush, tripping on roots torn by thorns and low branches, but running on and on towards freedom. But the patrol were no fools. They had quickly ascertained that the commotion to the south was a false alarm and came back to their post. Somewhere out in the bush they could hear the rustling and crackling of the broken branches and an angry cry of a disturbed night bird. The guards combed the bush, their guns shooting in all directions, and someone screamed and fell. And then they flung their lanterns into the thorns and a great blaze of fire lighted the whole area while they shot again and again. Moon and Tisla had ran straight east, following the line of the margin of the camp and into the path of the night breeze, which carried the flames before it. The bush was burning fiercely now, and those who had run westward would hardly have a chance. But running into the wind, away from all, the, all that enveloping smoke they might make it, thought Tisla grimly. Yet the air around them was scalding, and the crackling of the flames were very near. Blind with heat and swirling smoke, he stumbled on, hardly realizing that Muna was lagging behind. 
He only stopped when he heard her cry and fall. He ran back and helped her to rise and dragged her forward. She seemed unable to run any more, but as he turned, he had noticed something. He was no longer trampling over thorns and roots, but on dry, stony earth, and they had reached a clearing in the bush. He lifted her onto her back and struggled on, and as he progressed, the heat became less intense and the air clearer, and he knew that the fire would come no further, for he was running straight in the path of the wind. He also knew that the flames would prove an impassable barrier to the captors for hours to come. He pressed on, bowed almost double with Muna's weight until he felt he was breathing fresh night air, and then he laid her on the ground and sprinkled her face with water. It was very dark, but he could hear her breathing, and by the starlight he could see the whites of her eyes, so he knew she was looking at him. Muna, he whispered. She spoke in little gasp. I can't go on. My feet are burned and I'm bleeding. You must go on without me. You must go to the children. But he could not leave her. He loved her more than he loved the children. He put his arm under her and felt the hot stickiness of her blood. He did not care if they pursued him and shot him too, for she was starting on that last journey already, and he would gladly have gone with her. He wished he could see her, or that there was something he could do. He tore off a strip of his shirt and tried to stop the bleeding from the wound, but he knew it was no good. She was quiet, and her breathing was rapid, and her pulse was racing. I will stay with you, he said. You are my loved wife. He took off his cloak and rolled it up to make a pillow for her, and as he did so, he realized that there was a stirring of the wind, a thinning of the darkness, and a small tweeting of bush birds. He closed his eyes for a moment. He could not remember feeling so weary before. When he opened them again, he found that he could discern the shapes of the trees, ghostly white in the morning mist, and then he dared to look down into Muna's face. It, too, was ghostly looking. Her eyes were closed and the earth around her was dark stained. Yet it was the face of peace. She might have been sleeping at his side. He sat beside her until the sky beyond the clearing turned opal, flecked with feathery pink clouds, and then suddenly the east seemed to catch fire with the shot crimson mauve and the gold of dawn. He got up, took her cloak and then Jera and the water bottle and the pan from her waist and tied them around his own. Then he piled the brushwood and the stones over and wondered what to do next. He wanted to lay down beside her and die too, but he supposed he couldn't. He wished there was a priest and he thought he ought to say a prayer, but his tired brain seemed unable to remember the words. But there were two words he did remember, the last one she had ever spoken. He suddenly realized that there was still something to be done and that he was facing the wrong way. He must turn round and travel slightly northwest with the sun on his right shoulder. The children, yes, the children, he muttered. He picked up his bundles, looked down once more at the mound, and with tears streaming down his face, set off for the border. And tomorrow we'll read chapter 8. I love you, I'm praying for you, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.